Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. Let me get my buttons pushed here. Here we go. Okay. Happy Sunday, everyone. Hope everybody's had a great weekend. Let me have a little drink of water here. It's nice not to have the air conditioner blowing in the background. I apologize. Just before the show, I ate one of those um, oatmeal protein bars. The chewy one, so. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. Welcome. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Uh, I'm also the owner of the California... (laughs) It's one of those days. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong up and down the state. So that means if you have any paranormal needs to try and get to uh, send me a PM on Facebook or uh, email off of CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or CaliforniaHauntsRadio.org, and we'll get back to you. And because we're 35 strong and we're not just centered in Sacramento, that means anywhere in the state we can get to you. We also have branches in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So we can do it that way too. Excuse me with my allergies. Okay. Today is Reading Sunday, and for those of you that don't know what Reading Sunday is, we read out of a paranormal theme book every Sunday. And uh, right now we're reading out of uh, one about Lizzie Borden. Oh, it's getting very interesting. I read yesterday uh, for an hour. Hang on, let me have all the water. I read yesterday for about an hour to make up for not reading. Um... <laughs> Oh, look. Yeah, I'll put it down here. Hang on. To make up for not reading um, last Sunday because I had an emergency. So I had to go to the ER. On the ER, I had an emergency. I had to go to the ER. No, nothing life-threatening, but, you know, just had to go. But I want to thank you guys for coming today. I know it's Sunday. You're right in the middle. You're right at the end of your weekend, probably. Starting to make your dinner and make your plans for the week, whether you're going to work or go on vacation or what you're going to do because it's summer, right? We're right, a smack start in summer. But uh, I want to update you on a couple things. Monday, our guest is going to be <clears throat> Reverend Donna Vall. Donna Vall um, found somewhere along the line that she has psychic abilities, and she's used those psychic abilities to help people. Because what she does is she gets pictures of people that she communicates with. So essentially she can draw portraits of the dead for her, for people that ask her to. So she's going to be on to talk about that tomorrow. Also on Saturday, June 18th, which I think is a week away, Nancy Matz, medium Nancy Matz, who's on here every Friday, is going to be doing a five-minute reading for eight people. Excuse me. For eight people. And that's individual reading for eight people. And uh, that's going to be over on Facebook Live over at the California Haunts Ghostly Events page. And if you're interested in that, check out. It's, it's over listed in Facebook Events. Check that out and uh, sign up because it's going to start filling up here. So it's only going to be for eight people. So it's an exclusive event. And she will re- give you a five-minute reading. And Nancy is very fast at what she does. So if anybody can do a five-minute reading for you, Nancy Mass can do it. Trust me, I've known her for years. And she's very good at what she does. Anyhow, let me open my book up here. I'm going to give people time, a little bit of time to 
get caught up here to get in here. Yesterday, I, I was hoping, beyond hope, because I didn't know how far into the book we were when we cut off last weekend, or the, the weekend before last. And um, because you guys are the, are, are the regular crowd that comes in, I was hoping that we didn't get to the we didn't get through the the actual murder yesterday, and we didn't. Yesterday, uh, when we left Lizzie, she was plotting the murder because things had gone wrong. She had made plans to do things a certain way with poison, and things had gone wrong. So she didn't get to it. it didn't work out when she tried to poison her from her stepmother and father. So now we're up to the day of the actual event. So this is where we're going to start today is, is, is the actual um, event. So let me get in here. My antiquated tablet. So we've got a big week of shows coming up for you. Uh, Donna Vole is going to be with us on Monday. On Tuesday, we have... Another guest, Alana, Alana Freeland, who's going to be on to talk about chemtrails and geoengineering. On Wednesday, another Donna, Donna Anderson, is going to be on with us. And that's going to be a different kind of show. Like I always tell you guys, I like to do different types of shows. And that's going to be a different show on Wednesday in that what's going to happen is this, this, this woman is going to be talking about love affairs gone wrong, sociopaths and things like that, love affairs. And so we're going to be talking about that. And Friday, Thursday, we're going to be talking about haunted dolls. So that's going to be an interesting show, too. And then, of course, Friday, Nancy Matz will be with us. And there's more topics and conversation about past lives. Okay, another minute or so, and we're good. Um, anyway, my, again, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. If you're watching from Facebook and it's your first time, or you watch from Facebook, irregardless, you watch from Facebook, do me a favor. Do me a favor and click the follow button. Love to have some more followers. 1,300, love to build that up. Because we're broadcasting on Twitch today. If you're watching from YouTube or Twitch, please, please click the subscribe button. We're looking for subscribers. And share us. Share this around. Every Sunday we read from a paranormal theme book. That's something we do, with permission from the author, of course, the author and the publisher. But every Sunday we do this. It's kind of like a, a get-together where we kind of sit back, people can drink coffee and do whatever, you know, and just listen to me, listen to me chit-chat about whatever I'm reading about. So this is what we do on Sundays. And the rest of the week is all serious stuff. It's all paranormal and different topics. I'm a journalist. It's all different topics. So that's what I like to do. So if you could find it in your heart to share, because we're looking for, you know, we're looking for, you know, more people to, to get a hold of this show. YouTube gives us no love. They really don't. And as you can see, we've got great backdrops. We've got, you know, lighting's good. Everything's there. It's just YouTube just kind of jumps over us, leaps over us. So if you could help me out by sharing the show and subscribing, that would be great. I'd really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. You know, I'm just like on Facebook again. You'll know about our videos, just like the people that, that subscribe on YouTube. You'll know about our, our videos that are upcoming and things like that. And a special event. The 23rd, I believe, is going to be our 200th show. 
So we're going to have a kind of giveaway for prizes and stuff on that night. You know, and, and, and talk about having done 200 shows. It's going to be kind of cool. Very kind of cool. Very kind of cool. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, like I said, when we last saw Lizzie, and, I, and for those of you that are catching up, because of course, some of you weren't here yesterday. I got, you know, I had a medical thing go on last Sunday. And so when we left Lizzie before then, we were kind of building up to the murders. You know, we were kind of getting the subplot into the murders. We were looking at the trial, you know, in, in the subplot. Yesterday, when I made, when I did the makeup that was going to be read last Sunday that got read yesterday, it was like the, the week leading up to the murders and how she was planning on killing them a different way in that lead up. In fact, she had poisoned the milk. If you remember that, that they had a ranch property or a farm property out in Swansea that they were going to sign over, that he was going to sign over to the, to the stepmother. And this is why all this is happening. Because Lizzie didn't want to lose the property. Right? So what she did was she put poison in the delivered milk. Thinking that her father and, and stepmother were going to go this, go, go on their vacation to the farm. And they would drink all this milk because they were milk drinkers. But they didn't. Because when Lizzie went home early from her little vacation, it made them nervous. So they stayed home at the main house in Fall River. I think it's Fall River, right? But what happened yesterday was that you find come to find out that a couple farmhands drank that milk and got viciously sick. Okay, so things were happening. Yesterday in the book, as we were reading through, to give you an update for the people that missed it. Lizzie got rat poison and again put it in the milk. All right. So this is like, I don't know, two, two three days before she did the deed, uh, the, the, the actual deed. Well, she did that deed, but I'm just saying that she, that the deed that she became famous for. And her parents got sick. They were up all night throwing up. Very, very sick. The stepmother, however, didn't suspect Lizzie. The stepmother suspected something else had poisoned them. But nonetheless, this happened. Okay. So now we're leading up to the day of the actual murders. So here we are. Okay. So now that people are ready to go, let's do this. Pull up my handy little pen doohickey. Shows you how old I am. I call it doohickey. Chapter 10, Thursday morning. August 4th, 1892, the day of the murders. Thursday morning dawned with a layer of humidity, already sending droplets down the windows of the Borden house in 92 2nd Street. Hang on. Bridget Sullivan, who was the maid, okay, turned in her bed, her pillowcase damp beneath her neck, and looked at her small bedside clock. Six o'clock. She sighed and pressed her fingertips to her temples. She had a dull headache and sensed, the, and sensed the heat that would mount throughout the day. At least she had the afternoon off. This brightened her spirits. 
and she swung her legs out of the bed to rise. Bridget headed down the two flights of stairs to the kitchen. She swirled water into the empty milk glass from her room, watching as the film that coated its edges melted away. Her head throbbed. Not now, she thought. She was meeting her friends downtown this afternoon for a bit of fun. As she began arranging things for breakfast, she glanced at the closed sitting room door. Everything was quiet. She unlocked the wooden door in the back kitchen entry and left it open. She then unhooked the screen door and brought in the milk the milk can waiting for her from the Swansea farm. She poured the milk from the can into clean, manageable bottles and rinsed it out, leaving it to sit on the sink room floor until later. Bridget made two trips to the cellar, first to carry up the wood for the stove and then returning down the stairs to get a hold a hot of coal. Perspiration was pebbling her forehead, and she wished she could sit down for a bit. She paused in the cool cellar, bending slightly from the hip, as she tried to manage raking head. Crossing to the washroom, she splashed cold water on her face from the sink. The brick floor of the room lay bare before her. She glanced at the dry sink inside the chimney notch. The washing was done until next Monday. Today would be window washing. She took a deep breath and steadied herself for the day ahead. Picking up the coal, she mounted the steps to the kitchen. Excuse my allergies. Minutes later, at 6.30, Abby Borden entered the kitchen. She told Bridget Mr. Morse was in the house. Did he sleep in the attic? Bridget asked, somewhat surprised. No, he slept in the guest chamber. What have you for breakfast? Mrs. Borden asked kindly. Bridget noticed some of her employer's color was back in, in her face and she appeared to be feeling better. Excuse me, my nose. Soup and cold mutton, Bridget replied. Warm it over, but save enough for dinner. Abby turned and opened the sitting room door. John Morris's voice greeted her. He had been the first one up at 6 o'clock and was reading the paper. At 6.45, there was a knock on the screen door. Bridget opened it for the iceman. He hauled a chunk of ice into the sink room and deposited it into the icebox for her. Normally, Bridget would have paused for a chat, but this morning she was not feeling up to it. Ten minutes later, Andrew Borden came down the back stairs from his bedroom. He set down his slop pail and crossed, crossed the sitting room door. A short dressing coat hung there on a nail. He put it on and opened the sitting room door. Bridget saw him place the key to his room on the mantel there and greet John. He returned to the kitchen, picked up his pail, and went out to the backyard. Bridget was at the window beneath the window. Bridget was at the window beneath the window overlooking the yard. She watched as he threw the contents of the slop pail on the ground beneath the large pear tree. He then unlocked the barn, entered it, filled the pail with water from the faucet beneath the barn stairs, and returned to the house. He gathered up some rotten pears from the small kitchen table, took them out, and flung them under the barn. Finally, he returned with several that had fallen from the tree overnight, and placed them on the table. Crossing the sink, Andrew washed his hands in preparation for breakfast and entered the dining room. Bridget finished her cooking and opened the dining room door. John Morse, Abby, and Andrew were at the table. The maid placed some cold mutton, mutton soup, with potatoes, johnny cakes, sugar cakes, molasses cookies, and coffee on the table. She returned to the kitchen and closed the dining room door. 
Parentheses, the two doors leading from the kitchen to the sitting room and dining room were habitually kept closed. In the Victorian era, the closed door also helped to trap the heat in the kitchen during the summer months. Parentheses. Bridget began tidying the kitchen and folding the clothes that hung on the clothes horse from the day before. She separated the clean clothes into two piles, one for Abby and Andrew and one for Lizzie. The heat in the kitchen felt suffocating as the temperature outside climbed to 66 degrees with high humidity as a chaser. Abby rang the bell and asked for more coffee. As Bridget poured their cups, Abby asked her, Do you have anything particular to do today, Bridget? Bridget swallowed, knowing what was coming next. Uh, no, ma'am, she said. Well, I would like you to wash the windows, please. How? Bridget asked, hoping Mrs. Borden would want only the inside windows, as it was already hot and humid. Her hopes were dashed when her employer said, inside and out. Bridget walked to the kitchen and placed the coffee pot on the stove. Abby rang the bell in the dining room at, six, at 7.30, signaling Bridget they had finished eating. The three adjourned to the sitting room. Bridget carried in <clears throat> her own plate of white of whiteware and sat in Andrew's chair as it was closest to the kitchen door. She pushed his plate aside and placed some johnny cakes and cold mutton onto her own. She could hear the three of them talking in the sitting room next door, although their tones were low. Bridget finished her meal and took the dishes into the kitchen. She poured hot water from the kettle into the zinc-lined recess, adding soap flakes and placed the dishes in the sudsy water. She went about cleaning the kitchen, delaying the trip outside to wash the windows. Meanwhile, in the sitting room, Andrew and John talked, while Abby popped in and out, dusting and straightening. John had asked her first thing how she was feeling, and she answered him a good deal better. Andrew was still moving rather tenderly, his face wan and drawn. At 8.30, Abby headed into the front entry, feather duster in hand. John and Andrew spoke for another 15 minutes. At 8.45, John retrieved his hat from the hall tree, just on the other side of the sitting room door, inside the front entry. Andrew walked him to the back kitchen door. John testified that he saw Bridget in the kitchen as he and Andrew walked to the back screen door. They stepped outside and talked for a moment. Bridget did not hear what they said. Suddenly, Andrew called out. Come back to dinner, John. Andrew then entered the house and went into the sitting room to get the key to his room. He then cleaned his teeth in the sink. Filling a large basin with water, he carried it up the back stairs to his bedroom. Bridget continued to wash the dishes. It was only moments after John left that Lizzie suddenly entered the kitchen from the sitting room. What will you have for breakfast, Miss Lizzie? Bridget asked, her wrist buried in the hot water. I'm not very hungry, Lizzie replied. Maybe just some coffee and a cookie. Lizzie took a cup and was pouring herself some coffee at the head of the kitchen table that stood at the center of the room. Bridget's breakfast suddenly rebelled. The nausea she had been fighting for the past hour took over. She made a dash for the screen door and, raised, and raced to the back fence, where she placed a hand on the rough boards, bent over, and threw up. Andrew came downstairs, adjusting his thin lariat tie. Lizzie was seated in the big overstuffed chair near the south kitchen window. She asked if he would mail a letter for her. He took it from her, but said he may not make it to the post office this morning. The simple statement underscored Lizzie's feelings of betrayal. The signing of the deed was taking up his time that morning. He could not do the small favor of mailing her letter. 
Lizzie watched him enter the sitting room and heard the soft clink as he returned his bedroom key to the mantel. The daylight burglary of Abby's things had been over a year ago, yet he insisted on placing the key into their locked room where he could see it, where she could see it. She felt the anger rise in her, along with the panic, her companion for most of the past two weeks. Andrew sat for a moment in the sitting room, glancing at the Providence Journal until the clock chimed 9 a.m. Just then, the front door bell shrill near Lizzie's head in the kitchen. She jumped. Lizzie stepped to <clears throat> the open sitting room entrance and watched her father's back as he walked to the front door. Every nerve fiber in, in her was tingling. They are going through with it. She had hoped against hope her father would change his mind, that he would remember how much he loved her and their wonderful times together at the farm. Surely he would not give away her inheritance. But when Andrew opened the door, and she saw a young man standing there holding out a note. Her faith came crashing to the ground. I have a note from Miss Borden, the youth said, in a rather nervous voice. It's from a sick friend of hers. Andrew thanked him, pressed a coin into the lad's hand, and shut the door. Abby came down, hearing the bell from upstairs. Andrew handed her the note. He came into the kitchen and hung his dressing coat on the nail behind the door and put, his hand, put on his Prince Albert from the dining room. Lizzie was not in the kitchen. Lizzie was not in the kitchen chair. He thought he heard her in the cellar as he walked down the kitchen entry to the back screen door and stepped out. As he was about to descend the steps to the side yard and make his way to North Gate, fronting Second Street, he heard a noise from the backyard. He stepped down the four stairs and looked around the jog by the barn. Bridget was throwing up near the pear tree. He hesitated for a moment, feeling too awkward to assist her, and turned back toward the side steps. A thought stopped him. Now Bridget's sick. Was there really someone trying to poison them? With unsteady steps, he walked toward the gate. Parentheses. Mrs. Churchill testified that she saw Andrew Borden standing by the side steps of his home, near the barn, a little after 9 a.m. on the morning of the murders. She said he stood at the east side of the back steps, closest to the barn. He was standing at the steps, as if he was coming around the steps. I finally saw him heading toward the street. Parentheses. Abby stood in the front entry holding a feather duster in her hand. The note shook slightly in her hands. She was alone here with this deception now. Andrew was gone. Bridget would be outside soon, out of earshot, if, Liz if Lizzie should go into one of her black moods. She had been nervous from the beginning about the whole thing. Look what happened over the small house on 4th Street. And Andrew had helped her with. The girls had been furious alienating themselves from her. Lizzie even calling her mother after all these years. Her relatives would not even visit her at the house, as the tension was so severe, and the girl snubbed any of her guests. What was she doing? Lizzie emptied her slop pail in the cellar, just as Andrew stepped in onto the sidewalk to head downtown. She heard her stepmother's heavy footsteps as she walked through the dining room. Abby entered the kitchen, with a feather duster in her hand. She laid the duster on the kitchen work table. She then scooped up the pile of clean clothes Bridget had folded for her and Andrew headed, and Andrew, and headed up to the room. A few minutes later, she came down with, friends, with fresh towels and, and pillow shams for the guest rooms. Picking up the feather duster, she entered the dining room. Laying the shams and towels on the sofa, she began dusting the bric-a-brac and furnishings of the room. Lizzie came up from the cellar and set her slop pail down in the kitchen. 
She stepped, she stepped into the dining room where Abby was dusting, closing the kitchen door behind her. Abby seemed nervous to see her. Bridget entered the back entry. She had been out back sick to her stomach for almost 15 minutes now. While the emptying of her breakfast had helped, her head had a pounding feeling and her throat hurt. She stepped over to the sink and finished the last few breakfast dishes. The murmur of two voices came from the dining room. She recognized Abby's. The rising inflection sounded as if she was asking Lizzie questions. Lizzie answered in a civil tone, although Bridget could not make out the words. Are you feeling better? Abby asked Lizzie as they stood awkwardly face to face in the dining room. It's better, thank you, Lizzie said. Abby's nerves were showing as <clears throat> she suddenly blurted out that she had received a note from a sick friend this morning and would be going out soon. I just need to put the pillow shams on the guest bed. The room is all done, so you needn't worry about it, she said, hoping to win Lizzie's goodwill on this morning, most of all. It was usually Emma and Lizzie's chore to clean the guest room, unless the guest was Abby's, which was not often. With Emma gone, Abby was sure Lizzie would resent cleaning the room. She did not want to provoke, to, to provoke her this morning. Lizzie studied her, enjoy, enjoying the effect she was having on the nervous woman. Abby was not a good liar, and it showed. Her face was effused with color, and she twisted the feather duster's handle in her hands. Lizzie played with the idea of tormenting the woman by prolonging her agony with questions such as who was sick, who was picking you up. Instead, she merely walked into the sitting room and sat down, waiting for Abby's next move. And Bridget's. If you like this book you like me reading, be sure to share this with your friends. Be, uh, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and be sure to follow on Facebook. Just as Lizzie sat down, she heard the dining room door open from the kitchen. Bridget entered with a flurry of clashing dishes. <clears throat> the maid began laying out the clean whiteware on the table in readiness for dinner. Abby may have spoken to her again about the windows, not realizing the girl had been out back throwing up. Bridget finished laying the table and crossed the kitchen door. She looked back to see Abby dusting the door frame between the sitting room and the dining room. Bridget would never see her alive again. Twenty to thirty minutes later, with a heavy heart, Bridget walked down the cellar steps to get the pail. She would have to wash the windows. Lizzie now made her move. She grabbed a key from the sitting room mantel, eased open the door to the kitchen, and hurried to the back stairs. Abby had finished her dusting and entered the kitchen from the dining room just as Lizzie's skirts disappeared around the corner of the back stairway. Abby returned the feather duster to the, to the closet near the kitchen stove where the cleaning things were kept. She took a large blue silk handkerchief from the rag box. It had been Andrew's. She walked in the sitting room, picking up the clean pillow shams and guest towels, and she started for the front stairs and the room John Morris had vacated. Bridget came up from the cellar with the pail. She crossed to the closet, Abby had just closed and took down a brush for the windows. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lizzie unlocked Andrew and Abby's door with the mantel key. She hurried to the door that separated her room from theirs and slid back the bolt, leaving it touching just enough so someone glancing that way would not notice it was open. Hurriedly, she left the room, relocking their bedroom door to the second floor landing. She reached the bottom of the stairs just as Bridget stepped out into the side steps carrying her pail and brush. The servant had just gone through the sitting room and dining room, closing the windows. Lizzie had not been there. Yet, she appears within seconds at the back door. 
Are you going to wash the windows? Lizzie asked unnecessarily. Thursday was window washing day, and Bridget was standing there with the pail and brush. Yes, Bridget said. You don't need to lock the screen door. I will be around here. You may lock it if you want to. I will get clean water in the barn. Bridget may have hoped Lizzie would take pity on her. Although the temperature was around 74 degrees, the humidity was suffocating. Her head was pounding, and with each step she took, her stomach sloshed like, like a ship listing to the leeward side. Lizzie had to have seen me out back throwing up, Bridget thought. The girl was right there in the kitchen when I ran out the door. But if she hoped for a reprieve, there was none forthcoming. As Bridget headed to the barn for the pole that attached to the brush, <clears throat> she looked back at the screen door. Lizzie was gone. Chapter 11, Thursday, August 4th, 1892. The stage is set. As the August sun beat down on the Spindle City, none of its inhabitants could have known that by the time the city hall bell struck 11 o'clock, an act so brazen and heinous that it would make national headlines would occur inside a modest home in the heart of the city. Nor did they realize the name Fall River would forever become irrevocably connected to the name of Lizzie Borden and the murders in 92 Second Street. Andrew Borden spent his last two hours on the planet going about his typical routine. The Fall River Herald said he stopped into Pierre Leduc's for a morning shave around 9.30 a.m. The police never interviewed the barber or verified this. We do have at least 30 minutes of missing time concerning Andrew's whereabouts after Mrs. Churchill saw him standing near the steps by his back door at 9.05 and his arrival at his first place of business around 9.35. He had met up with someone concerning the clandestine transaction about to occur. Had, I'm sorry, had he met up with someone concerning the clandestine transaction about to occur. As we will see, his missing time and one others collide. Andrew Borden walked into the Union Savings Bank at number 3 Market Square about half past nine. Thursday morning, according to Officer Medley, Mr. Borden spoke to Mr. A Abram G. Hart, treasurer, and explained to him the reason he had missed the Wednesday meeting of the board of directors was because he had been ill. Mr. Hart said he remained, but a few minutes, not more than five, and went north from the bank. He was alone when he came and went away from the bank. He did not look strong, Mr. Hart said, during the preliminary hearing testimony. He was in after that, parentheses, his first visit of 9.30. But I was out. I know he was in by the word that came to me. John T. Burrell, a cashier at the National Union Bank, testified that Mr. Borden came into the bank between quarter past nine and quarter to ten. But I would not swear to that. He, he stayed from five to ten minutes. I saw him talking to two gentlemen and Mr. Hart in front of my inner room. Attorney Knowlton asked him if he was in the same building as Mr. Hart. Mr. Burrell answered, yes, sir. Mr. Burrell, when originally interviewed by Officer Medley before the hearing, stated Andrew J. Borden came into the bank as near as we can place the time about 10 o'clock. He went to the rear of the bank and looked in the rooms, probably for Mr. Hart, and finding no one, went out, remarking something about calling again. He did not call again. He was alone. Everett Cook was a cashier for the First National Bank. Andrew Borden was a director for the trust company affiliated with that bank. Mr. Cook testified that Mr. Borden entered the bank at quarter ten and went away at five minutes to ten. He told Officer Medley that Mr. Borden deposited a check which was made payable to him by Troy Mills. While making the deposit, Mr. William Carr came in. They talked together a few minutes and Mr. Borden left the bank. He was here not more than ten minutes while he 
while he was here, I noticed that he looked tired and sick. Knowing him so well, I could not help noticing he looked real sick. I did not speak to him about it because I thought he might consider it none of my business. He was alone when he came and went away from the bank. John Mathers testified that Andrew picked up an old broken Yale shop lock. Oh, sorry about that. I apologize, it's for a photo caption. <laughs> okay, hang on one second. John Morris's timeline. John Morris left the Borden house at 845 on the morning of August 4th, 1892. He spoke with Andrew for a few moments in a side yard and then started away. Andrew calling after him, come back to dinner, John. According to John's words to Officer Fleet on the afternoon of the murders, this was where he went when he left the house. Leaving Mr. Borden at the door, went to the post office, wrote a letter from there, went as far as 3rd Street on Bedford from 3rd to Pleasant Street, through Pleasant Street to number 4 West Boston Street, arriving there at 9.30 a.m. Saw relatives from the West. Remained at the house from 9.30 to 11.20 a.m. I apologize. Adobe just came through. So I, that's, a, that's a download thing. So I apologize. Let me make an adjustment on the audio here. I think I want, yeah. Okay. That's not supposed to happen, but it did. Okay, where were we? Oh, 4 West Boston Street, arriving there about 9.30 a.m. Saw relatives from the West. Remained at the house from 9.30 to 11.20 a.m. or thereabouts. Left, taking a horse car and stopped at the corner of Pleasant and 2nd Streets. And to Mr. Borden's house at or near 12 o'clock. Saw a number of persons around the house and was told Mr. and Mrs. Borden was killed. That was the first I knew of their deaths. Parentheses. Officer Midley stated that John Morris told reporter Edwin Porter of the Daily Globe that the first he knew of it, the murders, was when he was telephoned for at the Emory's. Morris also told the New York Herald, August 7, 1892, that he went to the post office and several other places about town and finally to Dan Daniel Emory's italics are the authors. During John Morris's preliminary hearing testimony, Two weeks after the murders, his story is improved upon. Morse, during his time with Andrew in the sitting room that morning, before he left for the Emory's, we talked about some cattle I had. He, Andrew, was telling me the night before, up at, the, up at Emory's, I had a nephew and a niece from the West, and he told me where they lived and wanted me to go and see them. Then I went away. I came to the post office and got a car. I wrote a postal. And I went up Bedford Street to 3rd Street and went from there to Pleasant Street and up to Wayboston Street number 4, down Emory's. Attorney Knowlton. Did you see rel did you see relatives you went to see? Morris. I saw one. The young man was out. I did not see him. Knowlton. What was the young lady's name? Morris. Annie Morris. She was indisposed while I was there. She was on the lounge part at the time. Of the time. She is my brother's daughter. Knowlton, did they ask you to stay to dinner? Morris, yes, sir. I told them I had another engagement. Knowlton, that engagement was to dine with your brother, Andrew? Yes, sir. Knowlton, did you, uh, did you walk up? Morris, no, sir. Came on the streetcar, got off at second and walked up. Knowlton, when was the first you heard that Mr. Borden was killed? Morris, when I went to, when I went to the door. I went around before I went to the house to a pear tree to get a couple of pears. When I came back, the servant girl met me at the door and asked if I had heard the news. 
I said no. She said, Mr. and Mrs. Borden were both murdered. A man named Sawyer stood there at the time. Knowlton. Were there people out in the street? Morse. I did not see them when I went in. Knowlton. You did not see any excitement in the yard or the street? Parentheses. By noon it was reported. Four hundred by noon it was reported four hundred to five hundred people were in front of the house. Many running around the yard and going into the barn. Morris. Nothing to attract my attention at all. Officer Medley. To prove the truth or false or, or falsity of Mr. Morris's statements, went to the home of Mr. Emery at number four Waybosses Street, about a mile from the Borden's home. He spoke with Mrs. Emery. She said Mr. Morris did come there at nine forty and left there at eleven twenty, or thereabouts that he did meet his nephew and niece. She also said Mr. Morris had not been to her house before in several years. She asked him to remain to dinner, but he declined, saying something about going to New Bedford, to which place they, to which place they understood he was going after leaving the house. He left by the front door, but she does not know whether or not he took a streetcar. The Fall River Herald reported Officer Medley's interview of Mr. Emery as well. A few other details are relayed. Mrs. Emery, I had several calls that day, one of whom was Mr. Morse. Callers that day, one of Mr. Morse. When he asked how she fixed the time at 11.20, when Morse left her house, after some little hesitation, Mrs. Emery said that one of her family was sick and that Dr. Bowen was her physician. Dr. Bowen came in just as Mr. Morse left. Did they meet, queried the officers? No, they did not, said Mrs. Emery. The niece entered the room at this time and collaborated the information. Morse left at 11.20, although they, they originally said it was 11.30. Chapter 12, Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Parentheses, she was struck 18 times. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe and share this with your friends. And if you're listening on Facebook, Please follow. Abby Borden found it difficult to concentrate on what she was doing. Straightening the guest chamber at least gave her nervous energy an, out, an outlet. The bed linens and the shams that went over the little pillows at the foot of the bed had been changed. John had lain atop the spread and put his feet with his dirty socks on the small pillows at the end of the bed. She replaced three dirty hand towels from the rack near the wash basin. John had used that morning with fresh ones. She poured the dirty... Boy, she poured his dirty wash water into the slot pail and filled the basin with clean water from the pitcher. She would take the slot pail, along with the soiled towels, to the cellar when she finished here. Then she would have to hurry and change to her street dress. The driver was picking her up at 10 a.m. She glanced at the small bedside clock. It was 9.15. Andrew's large blue handkerchief was put to use polishing the bric-a-brac on the dressing bureau and the large rectangular mirror. A cloth was almost in tatters, but the silk material made the glass shine. She next moved to the windows. Bridges' window, window washing did not include the private chambers. The girls were responsible for their own, and Abby took care of her and Andrew room, Andrew's room. Emma usually kept the guest room clean, as it, as it was used primarily as the sister's sitting room for their friends. It also doubled as the sewing room. A sewing machine sat against the west wall, while the basket of notions rested on the, on the cane chair by the north window. A yardstick was propped up by, by the machine. Abby pushed aside the shutters that faced 2nd Street. Taking one of John's used hand towels, she dipped it in the clean wash water and scrubbed the glass 
She repeated this on the other on the other window facing west, and then moved to the window overlooking the side yard in Mrs. Churchill's house. When she finished, she added the wet towel to the other two laying on the wash washstand. Taking Andrew's silk handkerchief, she began to polish the windows facing the street. Her breath was ragged. All the extra work and the heat of the second floor was taking a toll on her. She felt her extra pounds all the more on these humid summer days. The cheap calico dress clung to her like a wet, t- like wet tissue paper. Lizzie picked up her pile of freshly folded clothes from the kitchen table and started for the stairs. She stopped in the dining room and removed her low-tie shoes. She could hear Abby moving about the guest chamber in her great thudding steps. As she passed the front door, she checked the three locks. Everything was secure. Cradling the clothes in both hands, Lizzie climbed the steps in stocking feet. As she reached the curve of the stairs, she looked toward the open door of the guest room. Abby was swiping at the window glass straight ahead of her, near the dressing bureau. Why was she taking so long, Lizzie thought. Lizzie thought angrily. She was supposed to be in her room, changing to go out. Abby didn't hear Lizzie enter her bedroom and lay, and lay the clothes on the bed. Voices wafted into Lizzie's room from the open window facing the Kelly house to the south. She walked over to it and pulled back the lace curtain. Bridget was standing at the fence laughing with, Miss, with Mary Doolin, the Kelly maid. She hasn't even begun to wash the windows, Lizzie thought in a panic. Her timeline was falling apart. It will have to be now, she thought, her heart pounding. She couldn't swallow and her head felt dizzy. She would have to kill her in the guest room while Bridget was on the opposite side of the house. She couldn't wait anymore. She glanced at her clock. It was 9.30. She pulled the shiny hatchet from the mattress and placed it between the layers of clean clothes. A linen handkerchief rested on top. Taking several deep gulps of air, she again tried to swallow, panic rushing bile up into her throat until she thought she would vomit. With a final deep breath, she walked out on the landing and into the guest room. A flash of blue swept across the dressing bureau mirror mirror as Lizzie walked quickly across the room in her Bedford cord dress. Abby didn't turn until Lizzie was standing directly behind her. I think I have one of your handkerchiefs, Lizzie said, her voice trembling. Abby was caught off guard. Lizzie was holding out the pile of laundry toward her, careful not to spill the pile of clothes that rested in both hands. Abby hesitated, not recognizing the handkerchief, that rested on top of the pile. Lizzie suddenly pulled the, pulled the hatchet from the clothes, tossing them aside. They fluttered to the ground in a heap near the sewing machine. Before the startled woman could cry out, Lizzie swung the hatchet and caught her stepmother on the left side of her face, near the back by the ear. The wound hung open like a flap. Abby's look of shock, as her eyes locked with her attackers, gave way to mind-numbing pain. She doubled over in an instinctual move to cover herself. A flash of motion came from the second-floor bedroom window of Adelaide Churchill's house directly across from Borden's, and a stone's throw from where Lizzie stood. She quickly threw the small half-shutters together in an effort to block the outside view into the room. It was suddenly much darker. She saw Abby place a hand on the wound, dazed. Lizzie swung the hatchet into the air, her teeth set with hatred. The next two blows hit her stepmother atop the head, leaving small incisions in her scalp. Abby, now in full panic, whirled in a mindless attempt to flee. The only path not blocked by Lizzie was towards the bed. Again, 
the hatchet fell, this time finding its mark. The blade sliced through the calico and buried into the skin near the nape of Abby's neck, going into a full two inches, going in a full two inches between her shoulders, leaving a gash four inches wide, the entire width of the steel. The flesh spurted, drops. Hang on a second. Yeah. The flesh spurted, drops hitting the pillow shams on the left side of the bed. Cast off from the raised hatchet, cast off from the raised hatchet, raised hatchet, flew through the air, a small drop landing atop Lizzie's white petticoat, lying, lying on the floor a few feet away. Abby hit the floor with a resounding thud. The board shook beneath Lizzie's feet as she watched her victim fall face first on the floral Brussels carpeting. The blue handkerchief flew from Abby's hand, landing near her head. Lizzie paused only a moment, her chest heaving. The rage she had held inside for five years exploded. It came rushing out in a flurry of attacks. The hatchet swung through the air, sending droplets of blood into the top of the swollen bureau drawers, the marble base, the mop board, and bed frame. Only a few drops shot forward onto the wall before Abby's head. Straddling her enemy, Lizzie bent forward, her stocking feet hidden beneath her ruffled hem, and struck again and again at the exposed right side of her stepmother's head until the blade was hitting brain and bone. She gripped the hatchet in both hands, using shorter strokes, and lost count of the strikes. Finally, her anger spent and her forearms tired from the wielding the hatchet, Lizzie straightened, trying desperately to catch her breath. A dark blue caught her eye off to her right. There was something long and brown lying on the pure white counterpane. During one of the blows, Abby's fake braid of hair had caught on the blade and landed on the bedspread. She stood panting. In the soft shadows of the room, she stared down at the motionless form. The copper smell of blood filled the air. Her breathing began to slow. The room came into focus as her head cleared. A strange calm overcame her. She had done it. It was over. The original plan had been to kill Abby in her bedroom as she changed to go downtown. It was the only certainty Lizzie had, had awoken with sometime this morning before 10 o'clock. I'm sorry about that. It was the only certainty Lizzie had awoken with. Sometime this morning before 10 o'clock, Abby would go to her bedroom to change her shabby calico for a street dress. The bolt on the door separating their bedrooms had been pulled back. Everything was ready, but she had taken too long in the guest room, stopping to go down for the note, reminding Bridget about the windows. Perhaps this was better, Lizzie thought. There was no locked bedroom door from, from the landing a madman would have to negotiate, like the one to Abby's room. This looked easier. An open door at the top of the front stair landing, a helpless old lady making a bed, her back turned. Lizzie crossed to the water basin and plunged the bludgy hatchet into the fresh water. A red stain spread through the bowl. She rubbed it first with her hands, gliding them gently over the sharp blade and up and down the smooth history hickory hand handle. She picked up one of the wet towels and scrubbed it, carefully not to cut herself. The water was now a deep crimson. There was a stubborn put, puddling of blood at at the base of the helm. She would take it to the cellar and use the sink there. She dropped the bloody towel in, into the slop pail and grabbed another of John's soiled towels. The smell of death filled the room. It was an odd mixture of bodily fluids and the unmistakable odor of blood. It was nothing like the poor pigeon she had seen beheaded. An odd thought pressed up through the images of violence. Her father was a widower again. She paused to contemplate it. 
Bridget's laugh from outside rose incongruously through, through Lizzie's open bedroom window across the hall, bringing her back to reality. For the first time, Lizzie looked into the oval mirror at a face speckled with blood, Abby's blood. She was surprised to see only a few large drops. She scrubbed at her cheeks, nose, and forehead and dabbed it at the several droplets resting in, in her brown wavy hair. The back of her hands was covered with blood. She eased them into the crimson basin water and rubbed them. She could not see them beneath the bright red surface. Finally, she took the wet towel to them until they were clean. Her nails were kept short, and the blood beneath their edges came away when she scraped them. In her reflection, she saw that her bodice was covered with small, tear-sized blood drops. Two or three larger blotches covered the small, dark figure adorning the front. Grabbing the last wet towel, she dipped it into the fresh water in the pitcher, avoiding the bloody wash basin. She rubbed at the crimson spots, at first gently, then with more vigor. Some had soaked into the rib weave of the dress and would not come out. Lizzie held up her skirt and studied it. The old dull paint stain still rimmed the lower left side of the skirt. But she saw only a few drops of cast-off blood from the hatchet. All in all, it was far less blood than she expected. Bending low over the body and keeping the blow short, she served to keep the blood spatter to a minimum. She dropped the other two towels into the slop pail and poured the bloody basin water in with them, and then refilled the bowl with clean water from the pitcher. The morning heat reached in through the half-closed shutters, amplifying the smell coming from the area between the bed and the bureau. Lizzie stepped to the window facing the street and looked down looking for Bridget. She drew the still air into her lungs. Her pulse quickened. A cart of palm lilies was standing in front of her house. Mrs. Manley, Alice Russell's sister-in-law, and another woman were looking at the flowers and speaking to the peddler, who Lizzie recognized as Mrs. Man Manley's nephew. The noise from the street filled the room. A strange thought flashed through her mind. Life is going on as usual. There goes a drummer, headed for the daily news office. The miller's maid is outside cleaning windows, just like every other Thursday, and someone is yelling over at Hall stables. Nothing has changed except Mrs. Borden is dead. She looked, down, she looked down at the street, pregnant with people. How soon before they all know? And then she saw him, there, standing boldly in the gateway of her side yard, was a young man, his arm resting upon the post, waiting. Was he waiting for Abby? He was early. Lizzie ran to her room. She looked at her clock. It was 9.55. She heard the sound of scraping outside her window and peered out. Bridget was standing in the tall grass, pushing, a, pushing the long pole with the brush attached along the upper sitting room windows. She had obviously been talking with the Kelly maid for some minutes. Her thoughts suddenly changed to her father. He would be home at 11 o'clock to handle the business or rest in the sitting room before the new meal. She knew her Uncle John was not expected back for it. She had overheard the entire plan last night and this morning, and then this morning. Still, she had made sure the triple locks were bolted on the front door. She paused for a moment, taking stock. Abby was dead. The farm deed was to be put in her name. She, did she really need to kill her father, too? The Swansea deal would not go through now. She and Emma's inheritance were safe. Her father would be 70 next month, and the grave would claim him soon enough. She pictured bringing the hatchet blade down onto his head, and she froze. She couldn't do it. Poisoning was different. 
It gave one distance from the act of murder. But killing someone up close, their eyes looking at you in shock, in shock disbelief as the blows fell, that was terrifying. She had just done it. Now that she knew what it felt like to sink a steel blade into someone's brain, she could not reach a place in her mind where she could do that to a man she had loved so much until she came, until she came along and manipulated him into taking money away from his own daughters. A thought suddenly struck her. When Abby doesn't show up at the bank this morning, her father will, will come looking for her. She didn't have as much help as she hoped. I'm sorry, she didn't have as much time as she hoped. Now, the thoughts came flooding into her mind, as once again, she had to change directions. If she wasn't going to kill her, kill her father, what would she do with the bloodstained dress? She could try and burn it in the stove, but Bridget could enter and smell it. A burned dress with a body upstairs might look suspicious. Her thoughts raced. She would stick to her plan. She would slip the new dress over it, convince Bridget to go on some errands with her, and by the time her father came home, they would both have an alibi of being downtown when the maniac entered and killed Abby. She would remove the Bedford Court dress and somehow while they were out, some, somehow while they were out and dispose of it. That would work. Lizzie ran to the dress closet at the end of the hall and locked it and selected the new light blue calico pigeon blouse waist and skirt she had made in New Bedford the week before. It was her longest dress with a loose bodice and inexpensive, one she wouldn't care about damp blood getting on from the inside. Hurrying back to her room, she tried shoving her arm through the sleeves of the calico blouse waist. The large mutton sleeves of the Bedford cord bunched into the tight fabric and refused to budge. Lizzie tugged on the sleeves, trying to force the outer blouse to cover the other. As she pulled on the tight forearms, a button loop snapped. Angrily, she pulled off the blue calico and struggled with, with an answer. The sleeves of the Bedford cord would have to go. Without a thought as to the woman lying on the floor in a pool of blood, Lizzie dashed into the guest room and picked up the sewing box from the cane chair, a mere three feet away from Abby's shoes. She hurried back to her room and removed the Bedford cord blouse, taking scissors from the sewing box. She cut away the the, the, the volume of sleeves of the old dress. Sitting on the lounge, she hurriedly blasted the she hurriedly basted the small button loop on the calico back into place. Parentheses. During Lizzie's only testimony at the coroner's inquest, she stated I had only been upstairs just long enough to take the clothes up and baste the little loop on the sleeve. Parentheses. She put the Bedford cord blouse back on, sleeveless at this time, and hooked the front. Standing, she pulled the light blue dress with a dark figure over the old blouse and hooked it as well. It was a tight fit. The area around the waist bulged slightly. She unhooked the bottom of the top blouse to give it some space. Lizzie stepped into the calico skirt and pulled it up over the, strain, the stained one. While hooking it in the back, she looked down in dismay. The narrow ruffle, ruffle of the bit for cords showed. She sat on the lounge and, taking the scissors, cut away the ruffle at the seam, half cutting and half tearing it as she hurried to finish. Parentheses. Mrs. Raymond, the dressmaker, stated in her testimony that the Bedford cord was two inches longer than her, Lizzie's, other dresses. She also said its large sleeves would not fit beneath another dress. Parentheses. She looked about her for a place to hide the sleeves and ruffle scraps, Emma's room. If she needed to, she could lock the door and say Emma locked it when she left. Perfect. Officers Doherty and Mullany 
found Emma's door open on their first pass through the house. It was found locked later that day. Lizzie entered her sister's room and opened her small closet door. There were some spare pillows and a blanket on the shelf. Taking down a small pillow, Lizzie stuffed the fabric scraps into the sham and replaced it on the shelf. She closed Emma's bedroom door. She would need to get rid of the hatchet. It must look like, a, look like the murderer lost it during his escape. The hatchet could not be traced back to her. It was new and had been purchased from a man with no ties to her. Knowing Alfred, the Swede from the farm, would detect the hatchet missing from the cellar, buying a new one had been her only choice. Lizzie had selected the perfect place to put the hatchet, one in plain view and yet where it might be picked up and carried away. She looked out her window toward the southeast. She could see the foreign-looking man sawing wood just on the other side of her fence in Crow's yard. She could also see the woodpile where the hatchet would not look out of place. Whether the police found it and connected it to an escaping murderer, or the woodman happened upon it and happily took a brand new hatchet home with him, her purpose would have been served. It was away from her. She glanced down at the side of the yard. Bridget had moved to the other side of the house. Chapter 13 Thursday, August 4th, 1892 Timing Again, if you like if you like the Sunday story, you know, if you like the way this is going, please subscribe to YouTube or uh, share it with friends, you know, or do both, share, it, you know, subscribe and share. And if you're over on Facebook listening, please click the follow button. I'd appreciate it. At 9:45 Thursday morning, while Lizzie was cleaning Abby's blood from her body and dress, Joseph Chatterton arrived at the Borden house to pick up Andrew Borden's wife and deliver her to the National Union Bank on North Main Street. He was early, in case she was waiting out front. He parked his buggy down a, down away between the Borden and Kelly houses. The day was hot and muggy. He eyed the shade of one of the two large oak trees standing like sentinels before the Borden house. After several minutes, he got out of the buggy and planted himself beneath the north tree, nearer to Mrs. Churchill's home. The sidewalk was busy, so he stepped up onto the stoop of the north gate of the Borden property and leaned his arm against the fence post. Mrs. Delilah S. Manley and her friend, Mrs. Hart, were walking along 2nd Street at 9.45 a.m. They stopped to look at a cart with, a, with palm lilies for sale, standing between Mrs. Churchill's house and the Borden's. As Mrs. Manley stepped back up onto the sidewalk, she came face to face with a young man standing on the stoop of the north gate of the Borden house. She described him during the trial testimony as young, about 30, wearing light gray clothes. He was standing in the north gateway, leaning his arm on the gatepost. That gatepost is higher than this, according to a photograph of the Borden house. And that is the one he was resting his arm on. He seemed to be looking at us, taking in what we were talking about, I should judge. If Mrs. Manley had looked up at the house, she might have seen Lizzie Borden looking down at them, only moments after washing Abby's blood from her hands. Parentheses, during the preliminary hearing, Officer Molloy, Molloy, was asked by Lily's attorney, Mr. Adams, when Miss Lizzie said something about seeing a man around there that morning. Did not she say she saw a man under the tree or something like that by the front fence? Molly, I do not remember just what she said. She did say, Adams, you would not say she did not say 
in substance, something like that. Mullally, no, sir, I could not. Officer Mullally's witness statement, a statement that was required and turned in by every officer involved in the Borden murder case, is mysteriously missing from the reports. We hear of Lizzie seeing a man under a tree by the front fence, only in the preliminary hearing. Lizzie stepped into the guest room and took one last look at Abby's prone body. She had not moved. She would not move again. The metallic smell of blood was dissipating as the pool beneath her head soaked into the carpet. Crossing to the washstand, Lizzie checked that all was in order. She picked up the hatchet and the pail of bloody towels. Glancing back at the room, she walked out, leaving the door open. She looked into her room. It too was in order. She suddenly thought of the four-foot-long pipe lying beneath her bed. She would no longer need to eavesdrop on her stepmother and father's conversations through her secret hole in the fireplace. A metal plumber's pipe could be misconstrued into a weapon with which to beat someone over the head. She grabbed it. The sun beat down on Bridget Sullivan as she continued washing the windows. It was 10 a.m. and her dress st- struck I'm sorry, her dress stuck to her, perspiration matting her thick hair to the back of her neck. Mary Doolin, the Kelly's maid, was also going about washing the windows. It was Thursday. Maids all throughout Fall River were on ladders or struggling with long poles, brushes, and pails. Lizzie knew Bridget's window was wash- window washing schedule by heart. She always started with the sitting room windows on the south side, moving around to the west to the parlor windows near the front door, and finally the one parlor window and two dining room windows on the north across from Mrs. Churchill's. She would wash them first with a brush and then go around again, in the same order, throwing water up on them with a dipper. Parentheses. George Petty said he saw Bridget washing windows at 10 o'clock. Mrs. Churchill stated she saw Bridget throwing water on the parlor window with a dipper that morning, the parlor window closest to my house, north side, between 10 and 10.30. Bridget stood on the ground, reaching up with the long pole, washing the parlor window next, next to the front door. The front of her dress was wet from wash water from wash water and sweat. She did not notice a young man who had, only moments before, been leaning on the board and gate post, become nervous of her presence, and walk across the street. Joseph Chatterton watched, watched the front door of the Bordens expectantly. The city hall clock had struck 10 o'clock only moments before. His shirt was damp in the heat and humidity. He watched the maid across from him pick up her pail, a long pole pressed beneath her armpit, and circle around to the north side of the house. Lizzie Borden watched Bridget's movements as well from the cellar. She could see the maid's feet through, through the small cellar windows, as she moved from window to window and went to the barn for fresh water. She was almost finished with the first part of the work. It would take her only 15 to 20 minutes to finish up the rinsing with the dipper. Cellar, oh, here we go. Lizzie filled the cellar sink with cold water. She grabbed Bridget's bar of wire soap and scrubbed the new hatchet along its edge. The gold gilt emblem from the manufacturer remained intact at the hatchet center. The place beneath the blade, where it met the handle, was the hardest part. Some of the blood had seeped up under the opening. The handle had cleaned up nicely, as it was new hickory wood and deep crevices had not yet formed. She took one of Bridget's small scrubbing tools and worked on the stubborn stain. It would not need to be perfect. An escaping murderer would not be expected to have a pristine weapon. 
Outside the Borden house, as Bridget came back around to the Kelly house side of the building to begin rinsing the windows, Dr. Benjamin Handy was, was passing up 2nd Street, taking particular notice of the Borden house. His daughter, Louise, may have told him of a strange letter Elizabeth Johnson had received from Lizzie in the morning mail. Elizabeth Johnson, who was at the Handy Cottage at Marion with the other girls vacationing there, they were expecting Lizzie on Monday morning, but the letter Elizabeth received from her friend was so frightening, she showed it to the other girls. Strange tales of poisoning, enemies, and a man running about the Borden house in the shadows. Louise may have asked her father to drive by the Bordens to see if he saw anything out of the ordinary. Any strange men running around the house, or about the house. The letter also mentioned a hatchet. Dr. Handy was questioned extensively by Attorney Knowlton about what he saw on 2nd Street that morning. Knowlton, were you in the vicinity of the house during the, during the forenoon at any time? Handy, I passed it twice, once in the morning about 9, and returning about somewhere between 20 minutes past 10 and 20 minutes of 11. I was in a carriage. Knowlton, did you see any person in the vicinity of the Borden house at this time? Handy, I did. He was opposite the space between Dr. Kelly's house and Mr. Wade's door. He was a stranger. I noticed he was very pale, exceedingly pale, and he was very pale, exceedingly pale individual. And he was passing very slowly up the street south. He was just beyond Dr. Kelly's house, south, opposite, the space between that and the store. He was a young man of medium height, dressed in a light suit of clothes, sort of grayish. There was something about him that attracted my attention. So I turned and looked at him the second time as I went by him. Knowlton, did you ever see the man before? Handy, my opinion is that I'd seen him before, within a few days on 2nd Street. I had the impression that he had a mustache. He was a small man, 5 feet 4, 5 feet 3 or 4. Knowlton, short was he? Handy, yes sir. He had a very full and very white forehead, full face. I spoke to my wife and to the officers that are stationed at the patrol station nearby opposite my house. Knowlton, what time in the morning did you say it was? Handy, somewhere between 20 minutes past 10 and 20 minutes of 11 in that 20 minutes. Knowlton, which way was he going? Handy, he was facing south. He did not always face the south. He turned partially around several times while I was going by. That is moving. He had on an ordinary sack coat. He was alone, looked agitated. Knowlton, you understand quite active efforts have been made by the police to find such a man? And they have followed down every rumor? Handy, yes, sir. Redirect by Mr. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney. Jennings, what did he appear to be doing when he turned around? Handy, he did not turn clear around. He seemed to be moving or facilitating or oscillating on the sidewalk, looking down at the sidewalk. Both of the Chatterton brothers, James and Joseph, were described as pale complexioned. The witnesses who saw James, the witness who saw James in his baseball shoes on Monday, described him as having a sallow complexion, a synonym for pale. James is described as five nine, and Joseph is a small man of five three or five four. Doctor Handy says he feels he has seen the young man before a few days earlier. Perhaps Handy saw him as Joseph waited in the buggy at the Bordens for James on Monday. Mrs. Manley describes the young man waiting out in front of the warden house, leaning on the gatepost, as about 30. Joseph Chatterton was 31 years old. Both brothers worked inside making shoes. 
That may contribute to pale complexions, or it may be a family trait, such as redheads and heron. Lizzie walked carefully up the cellar steps to the kitchen. She wasn't sure if Bridget might come into the house again. She had heard her several minutes ago, getting the dipper from the sink, the screen door slamming behind her as she went back out. Watching the open door, Lizzie grabbed Bridget's soft felt hat from the pegs lining the back entry. She picked up the hatchet and placed it sideways inside the hat. Carefully, she rubbed the felt along the handle and blade. She had read that a new kind of forensic technology was now being used by police. It was called fingerprinting. She wasn't sure if Fall River had it yet, but she heard Boston might be using it. Lizzie peeked through the screen door. No Bridget. She should be at the front of the house, Lizzie thought. She hurriedly picked up the plumber's pipe, hat, and hatchet, and ran out the side door to the backyard. She dropped the pipe in the tall grass and hurried for the lumber pile at the back of the property. Her heart pounding, the noises of the neighborhood caused her nerves to fray with each sound. Looking about her constantly, she climbed up onto a few boards and reached up for a pair. Just an innocent outing in the morning hours should anyone be watching her. The felt hat, still gripping the hatchet, was in her left hand, away from the house. The pear branches poked her as she adjusted herself on the boards, the wood making a scraping sound against the rough timbers of the fence. Lizzie took one last look toward the street and back again at the side jog by the barn and then flung the hatchet from the hat over the fence. Her sleeve just missed becoming snagged on the barbed wire with which her father had lined the top of it. A loud bang sounded. She had missed her mark. Underestimating how far a top-heavy hatchet would fly, she heard it land on the metal roof of Crow's barn, farther back from the woodpile she had hoped for. The loud clang of Mason's metal hitting stone had covered the noise. She thought she heard the hatchet slide down the metal roof, but she wasn't sure. Let me see. The sound of sawing continued uninterrupted. The foreign-looking man on the other side of the fence had noticed nothing. Excuse me. Lizzie climbed down from the woodpile. Once again, she scouted the yard and street and peered up at the curtain windows of her neighbor's houses. It didn't appear as if she had been seen. She dropped the pair in the grass. A young Russian immigrant, Hyman Lubinsky, was driving his ice cream cart north on 2nd Street, coming from Charlie Gardner's stable on 2nd Street in Rodman. He saw the pretty Irish maid up ahead, closing the tall shutters to the window near the front door. She looked as though she was in a hurry. He had sold ice cream to her in the past, in the past couple weeks. Perhaps he would come back after he picked up his merchandise. Lubinsky was asked about why he saw what he saw that day. His original report to the police was that he passed the Borden house at 10.30 that morning. His timeline had changed by the Superior Court trial one year later. The rest of his story had not. Mr. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney. When you got to the Borden house, did you see anybody on the premises? Lubinsky. Yes, sir. I saw a lady come out the way from the barn right to the stairs back of the house, the north side of the stairs from the back of the house. She walked slow. Can you tell how she was dressed? Lubinsky. She had on a dark colored dress. Jennings. Did she have anything on her head? Lubinsky. No, sir. Jennings. She was going towards the steps. Did you see her go in the house? Lubinsky. I don't know. I couldn't tell this. Jennings. Have you ever seen the servant who worked at that house? Lubinsky. Yes, sir. 
Jennings, have you ever delivered ice cream to her? Rabinsky, yes, sir. Two or three weeks before the murder. Jennings, was the woman you saw the servant? Rubinsky, I saw the servant and the woman too. Was the Jennings, was the woman you saw the day of the murder the same woman as the servant? Rubinsky, no, sir. Jennings, are you sure about that? Rubinsky, I am sure about that. Quickly fearing, quickly fearing Bridget would head to the barn at any moment, Lizzie grabbed the pipe from the grass and ran to the open barn door. She lobbed the plumbing pipe at the box near the door, where other metal pieces were kept. Her aim was off. The pipe hit the side of the box and rolled on, out onto the barn floor. She had no time to retrieve it. What did it matter anyway if it was seen there, she thought. Lizzie walked slowly to the side of the house, where the back stairs were, and stepped around the corner, looking for Bridget. She did not see her. What she did see was a young foreigner in a cart looking right at her. Officer Medley reported seeing a piece of lead pipe, about four or five feet long, laying on the ground near the barn, floor of the barn, distance from the door about five feet. This lead was in full view and could readily be seen by anyone. I saw it on the afternoon of August 4th. Bridget Sullivan closed the tall, dark, drab parlor blinds and headed around the corner of the house toward the barn just missing the screen door as it closed silently behind Lizzie. The servant emptied the dirty water in the yard and returned to the long pole and returned the long pole to the horse stall in the barn, stepping over a piece of pipe on the floor. Her head was throbbing and her stomach still felt queasy. She entered the side door of the kitchen and lashed it from behind and lashed it behind her. The sudden darkness of the back entry felt like an oasis after being in the unrelenting sunshine. Her flesh pebbled at the change of temperature as she trudged down to the cellar to return the pail, dropping it at the base of the stairs. Bridget walked back up the cellar stairs and placed the brush back in a closet by the stove. She took out two small wash rags, hand basin, and a small stepladder. Crossing the sink, she filled the basin with the water and walked to the sitting room. She removed the screen of the window closest to the front door, climbed her small ladder, and began to wipe the dirty glass. Lizzie sat on the lounge in her room, her head spinning as she covered her tracks. The hatchet was away from the house. She had almost forgotten to return Bridget's hat to its peg after she laid it on the kitchen table and headed for her room. Only after she was halfway to the front stairs did she realize and remember she had left it there. She placed it back on the peg, making sure its shape was the same as when she had borrowed it. Wearing two dresses was taking a toll on her, but she couldn't, but she could hear Bridget get raising and lowering the window. She could hear Bridget raising and lowering the window in the sitting room. She would be finished in about 15 minutes. She had only the two sitting room windows to do, and two in the dining room. She was not in charge of the parlor, and only rarely cleaned the kitchen windows, as they did not show for company. She could handle wearing the double layer of clothing for a little while longer. She only hoped the girl hurried with her work before her father returned. Looking at a reflection in the, dressing, in the dressing table mirror, Lizzie smoothed her hair. She backed up and twirled slowly around. She could not see the hemline of the bedford cord she wore beneath the calico. She leaned close to the mirror, checking for any blood she may have missed. Her large, cat-like eyes looked suddenly foreign to her. There was a dullness to them, as if the light had gone out. They looked puffy from lack of sleep. Straightening, she double-checked that the hooks on the front of her blouse waist 
were holding, firm against the extra bulk. Her hands looked clean. She breathed a little easier. Remembering the hatchet, she stepped to the window closest to the backyard and peered out. While she could see the top of the woodpile and the man sawing the wood, the pear trees blocked her view of the, road, of the roof of Crow's barn. She wanted desperately to see where the hatchet had landed, but she didn't dare go and look. Picking up her purse, Lizzie stepped into the guest room, unable to stop herself from taking one more look at her handiwork. Standing at the bottom of the bed, she looked down at the rotund woman she had grown to hate. It was all so surreal. She had to keep reminding herself that Abby Borden was dead. In a few more minutes, she and Bridget would be headed downtown, checking sails and running errands, something the two had never done before. In only a few more minutes, she would be in the clear. Just then, someone began rattling the front doorknob. Bridget, not expecting Mr. Borden yet, walked to the parlor and peeked through the crack in the parlor blind at the front door stoop. To the left, it was Mr. Borden, home early. He was fumbling with the lock. Bridget, Bridget hurried to the front door to let him in. Lizzie heard the commotion and stepped onto the landing to listen. There was a rattling at the front door as if someone was trying to get in. Her breath caught. She stepped quietly down two steps into the curve of the staircase, where she had a clear view of the front door. She saw Bridget's back turning the spring, turning the spring lock. The maid turned to head back to the sitting room, only to hear the door rattle again. She returned, sighing deeply, struggling, struggled to slide back the top bolt. Finally, she locked the last, the last latch and swore. The profanity Bridget used, so strange and so indicative of the moment, took Lizzie by surprise. Her nerves screaming and her plan of escape shattered. She looked at Andrew Borden striding in the front entry and turned to see Abby Borden's body beneath the bed through the stairwell spindles. She was trapped. She was, in essence, the word Bridget just used. Lizzie laughed. Okay, do you guys want me to go on and read about Andrew, or do we wait till next week? Okay, well, I hate to do this to you, but I'm tired, and uh, we're at Chapter 14, and the Hands of Fate, and it'll be about Andrew being killed, so I think we covered a pretty good amount today. So I'm going to go ahead and close it there. Wow. If all that really happened, that's something, boy, I'll tell you. It's hot in here, I'll tell you for sure. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight, today, tonight, to listen to me read. And next week we will continue because now we're coming into... Mr. Borden's death. And then we're getting Bridget's reaction about seeing the body and all that. Wow, 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 wow. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and spending their Sunday evening with me. I really appreciate it. I really, really do. And like I said, you know, we're looking for subscribers on YouTube. So if you feel it in your heart to do that, click on the little ghost with the uh, magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat and subscribe. And if you're on Facebook, please uh, push that follow button. You know, and if you uh, liked it, you like what you what you hear today, and you want to look at our other stuff, or you've heard our other stuff, 
then please do share us with other people. You know, one of our sayings is share it with five people you like, share it with five people you don't like. That's how we operate here. So, I, and again, I really appreciate you spending time with me. Tomorrow, Reverend Don, Donna Vole will be with us, and she's going to tell us about her unique skill of drawing pictures of deceased people for clients, or people that come in, rather, and want to know about their deceased relatives. So she's able to, to uh, sketch photos of, of, their, of, her, of their deceased relatives. And please remember that next Saturday at 7 p.m., Nancy Matz is going to be doing a special reading. And that's over on the California Haunts. Um, oh, I'm tired right now. California Haunts Ghostly Events page. And that will be a Facebook-only event for only for eight people. So if you want to join in on that, go to that California's Go California Haunts Ghostly Events page and check that out and sign up accordingly on Facebook. And again, I want to thank everybody for being there, you know, for, for coming and all that. And uh uh, California Haunts uh, doesn't take any money for their investigations or anything like that. So uh, we do take donations. And if you can feel it in your heart to help support the paranormal team that helps so many people, that would be great. And you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo. And then type in California Haunts. I'd appreciate it. But anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And again, I appreciate you coming. So I'll see you tomorrow for Reverend Donna Bull. Have a good night.